0: Exocast. Exocast.
1: Exocast. Exocast.
0: <laughs> Exocast. 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 Exocast.
1: Exocast. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and as always, I am joined by Hugh Osborne and Andrew Rushby. In this episode, we are chatting with exoplanetary scientist, Professor Nicole Lewis. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: It is incredibly difficult to give a brief introduction to Nicole and her work, so I'm not even going to give that a go. Nicole is a professor and deputy director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell University, where she's been since 2018. Before that, Nicole was at the Space Telescope Science Institute for four years, where she served as a member of the JWST nearest instrument team was the JWST Transiting Exoplanet Group Lead and then went on to become the JWST Project Scientist in charge of basically all things JWST at Space Telescope. Nicole actually started her career as a Physics and Mechanical Engineering major with an MA in Astronomy and then worked in industry for several years before coming back to academia and doing a PhD in Planetary Science at the University of Arizona. Following her PhD, Nicole was awarded a NASA-Sagan Fellowship at MIT before moving on to her roles at Space Telescope and Cornell. And today we're going to be talking all about the various things that Nicole has been doing throughout her career and her time working with various telescopes, lots and lots of data, and just generally running stuff. So welcome again to the show, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should kind of kick it off. Why don't you give us your perspective, your idea of what what you're working on at the
2: moment and what roles you have right now? Yeah, well, currently I'm on sabbatical.
0: Very which nice. Is this
2: magical time where I where I get to really focus on research. I get to take a break from my teaching responsibilities and my service responsibilities at Cornell, which will soon ramp up again. But it has allowed me to actually go back to sort of doing the stuff I did as a graduate student and postdoc, which is reducing and analyzing data and then developing theoretical models to interpret that data. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. It really has been allowed me to dig deep into JWST data And bring up fond memories of things we've seen with Spitzer and even Hubble. And just full disclosure, Nicole is doing that sabbatical here at the University of Bristol with
1: me, pretending she's my postdoc the whole time which has been great fun Uh, and I put her in an office with my current postdoc who has been absolutely loving it
2: so we need to get a a new friend to replace her soon yes (laughs) no it's been fun Uh, it's been great to be able to go back uh, basically take a time machine back six years seven years (laughs) not have to worry about running things that's right (laughs) but that will soon happen again so
0: (laughs) so how has the field changed in those six years I guess The main change is probably that we have JWST now, but is there any other ways that the field has progressed?
2: Um, I mean, there's certainly been a huge growth in the number of people in the field in the last six years. Um, Even going back further, when I started in exoplanets, I remember going to my first exoplanet meeting and there were like 40 of us. And then the last one I went to there was like 400, (laughs) maybe 600. And that's great. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm and, and uh, people doing work and what's happened is people have been able to bring new ideas and new skill sets to bear on exoplanets. So you know, six or 10 years ago, we were just sort of learning, how do we deal with data? What can we learn? Um, There was a lot of emphasis on just doing sort of standard atmospheric models, equilibrium chemistry, and that was really enough to explain what we were seeing in the data. But the data has gotten so much better, especially with JWST, that um, we're having to come up with all sorts of new ways to explain what we're seeing.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned there that you, the modeling side of things. I mentioned at the beginning that you do a lot of analyzing of observations and and taking lots of data, but you also are a theorist. In fact, you started in your PhD doing theory. So where do you find the balance between those two things?
2: Yeah, I like to sit sort of on both sides of the fence, (laughs) which can be both helpful and then also there's a lot of internal arguing that happens when you do both data reduction and theory. And I think that's important that, you know, everyone sort of understand what's happening across the full train of scientific inquiry, right? Um, You don't want to just throw data over the wall and then say, hey, what's over there Uh, to your theorist friends. And at the same time, I think theorists need to understand what the limitations are from the data. Um, And so, you know, actually, if I have to pick one side or the other, I I think the theory side is perhaps more fun for me because it is a space where I just get to sit and think. Like, what could this planet be like? What kind of physics and chemistry could be shaping it? But certainly the data reduction is, is much, much more like problem, like puzzle solving. It's like, where, why is that little blip in there? And so it feeds a lot of, uh, you know, two halves of my brain, the deep thinking and also
3: the puzzle solving. So Nicole, is it maybe a, a bit of a leap to suggest that maybe those, those problem solving novelties are maybe a reason that academia brought you back from, from private industry, perhaps? It's not a journey that often we hear in this direction. Sometimes we hear about people leaving academia to go to private, mm-hmm. the private sector. Uh, can you give us a few reasons as to, as to what brought you back?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly having... Uh, in industry, I had plenty of problems and puzzles mm-hmm. to solve, actually. And um, I, I worked at a place called uh, Draper Laboratory, which used to be the MIT Instrument Lab. So it's kind of one of those academia adjacent type of places Um, I was working on what is now Artemis um, and a couple of other things while I was there and you know it was great I I did feel challenged I think the real reason why I made the shift from industry to academia is that I I wanted a little bit more creative freedom basically as I explain it I wanted to open my own small business so I I didn't want to work at Starbucks anymore I wanted to own my own coffee corner coffee shop Um, and so that's really why I made the leap is that I had all of these ideas and, you know, I think if I were to stay in industry, I probably would be in business development. Um, I had all these ideas and I, I really wanted to find a place where I could grow them.
3: Yeah. Your corner coffee shop, I think.
2: And you've certainly done that. be, it would done be that. a good option. <laughs> <laughs> my, my corner coffee shop. Yes. with My own espresso machine. I can make all the types of wacky drinks that I want to make. So, oh, you can have to come up with a name for that coffee shop now. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Give me time. Okay.
1: <laughs> so you really have done that. You've worked on so many different things and kind of taken yourself in in many different directions. So you talk us through that journey that you you went from from grad school all the way up to
2: JWC project scientist. So uh, there was grad school number one, yeah, right, <laughs> <laughs> and grad school number two. And I I think that's important to emphasize is that I decide, I did start sort of a normal academic journey going straight from undergraduate into graduate school. And then I decided I I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to do. And I think that's an important thing that I share with people. It's like, it's okay to say, hey, Maybe I need to stop here and reevaluate if this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And so, you know, that early work I did in my master's degree was actually quite useful for the data analysis and observational reduction stuff that I do now. I was actually working on the interstellar medium, which is also, you know, very, very similar to a planetary atmosphere. And then I went through working in industry then decided to take a giant pay cut. I thank my husband for supporting me in that. And going back to grad school, I always had a really fond spot for planets. I think they are amazing, first of all. You can't you know look at those images coming back from Juno and just be like, Jupiter is awesome. It's basically the only thing you can say, right? <laughs> yeah. And so when I went back to grad school at the University of Arizona... I was able to start working on general circulation models of extrasolar giant planets, which was really intriguing and actually got to leverage my aerospace engineering and fluid mechanics, which was fun. Mm, true. And so, again, I, I've been basically taking little bits and pieces from everything I, I've done in my life and sort of just inserting them where they help whatever I'm doing at the, at the current moment. And so, having broad experiences has really helped me be successful. You know, after grad school, I spent a couple of years at MIT. I uh, got to you know surround myself with new people and new ideas, and then uh, the job at Space Telescope came up onto the the radar. And it was really a great place for me to meld both my industry and my academic experience. And so I applied for the job and was offered the position. And I learned so much during my time at Space Telescope, um, especially about how space telescopes are run and operated. I got to build a lot more sort of management and leadership skills, which have really been helpful and carried over to my career at Cornell, where I do what any standard professor does. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of teaching or... I mean, I teach a class every semester, okay. so um, and I don't think I'm terrible at it, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what does being J W C Project
1: Scientist mean? So people probably don't know the, that phrase. What, what exactly does that mean, and what does it mean to be J W C Project Scientist at Space Telescope?
2: Yeah, so um, typically, uh, the Project Scientist role is a what we, I would call an outward-facing role. There's often sort of a, a mission scientist or somebody who has more of an inward-facing role, so really f- focused on sort of, you know, the day-to-day engineering and, and nuts and bolts sort of thing. Project scientists, you, you're kind of in charge of holding the scientific vision and steering it and interfacing with the community, especially at Space Telescope Science Institute, whose major role is being a uh, supporter of the astronomical community and their use of, you know, Hubble, uh, JWST, Roman uh, in, the, in the future. So that was really what my role was as JWST project scientist at, at SDSCI was holding that scientific vision, bringing back um, ideas from the community uh, and getting that information into the stream so that it, we had the best telescope possible for the community to use.
1: And I think we definitely have that. Yes. (laughs) So that's good. So let's pivot a little bit to the science that you're working on right now. What is the thing that's exciting you at the moment about the science that is is being done, in particular, looking at what JWST is currently
2: doing? Yeah, I mean, JWST is doing a lot of very interesting things. And I think the the biggest thing is is we've just been able to push so much further down in our precision. And that allows us to ask harder questions, right? Right. You know, we start with is there a planet, which is planet detection. <laughs> yes, so that's huge job, <laughs> right? Thanks for finding them for us. Yes, much appreciated. Um, and then we we go on to is there an atmosphere? What molecules are in those atmosphere? And then we start to ask the really deep questions about why are those molecules or those aerosols in that atmosphere? What does the you know three D structure of that planet look like? And JWST is starting to, to allow us to really dig into what these planets look like in multiple dimensions. And so I think that's the really exciting part of what JWST has enabled and will continue to enable. And we're going to see lots of surprises. I mean, planets never do what you want them to do. They're not that would very, be boring. They're Yeah. Planets are not boring. They're not going to do exactly what you want them to do. And I, I think we're already seeing across the board that Our expectations for these planets are always just fall a little bit short.
3: But you're not just coming at it from on orbit or from the ground. There's also the the lab approach that you're using, the lab astro approach to atmospheric evolution, understanding different atmospheric compositions. Could you talk us a little bit about the kind of experiments that we could do in the lab to inform some of our observations or understanding some of the observations we might get from from JWST?
2: Yeah, and and just full disclosure, I am not a lab astro person. I am a (laughs) lab astro advocate. I'm not allowed to touch any of the equipment. That's fair. But let me in the lab. Okay, I can go around and look at things. (laughs)
3: i'm not even allowed in the labs uh, anymore i took a coffee in once as i often mention i got so but we've had sarah on before so i guess she you know she's very much on the lab astro side of things um and, and does some great work but um
2: yeah yeah and and that's another one of those interfaces again we have the important observation the theory interface and there's an important you know all the way down to experimental work that needs to be done to support both the theory and guiding observations and so you know it has been exciting to be able to work with people like Sarah Hurst and say, hey, I would like you to put these random chemicals in a can for me and, you know, light it up, see what happens. <laughs> and, th- and thankfully, Sarah was amenable to doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that there exists many um, facilities out there that have been used to study chemistry and stuff like the ISM or solar system planets. Um, And the thought of the kinds of chemical mixtures and temperatures and pressures that we're interested in for extrasolar planets can be a little bit scary. And so, or unsafe in some cases. Mostly unsafe, uh, hence the scary nature. <laughs> yes, but we were surprised with the things that health and safety would let us put into Sarah's setup. So I, I think that's an area where we, we just need to think a little bit more about how can we do this, of course, safely, but also expand our ability to test new regimes in chemistry that are not out there in you know, ISM or our solar system planets as well. I think the other thing is is that lab astro especially for exoplanets hasn't really found a good sort of home or community. It's a community that's still growing and so it's one that has kind of started to spin up as we got better and better data. You know, Many people who do the type of work that we need are coming from the solar system and they would look at our early data and be like, I'm not doing anything for you for five data points. Like, <laughs> that's just not worth it to me. Um, but now that we're seeing all of these beautiful spectra coming out of facilities like JWST, it has intrigued many people. And hopefully we can see a growth of people who can provide us with things like molecular cross-sections. Aerosols are a big thing. Both clouds and hazes are going to be very, very important across the board um, for understanding exoplanets. So when we're talking about things
1: generated in the lab, how do you take that information and then translate it into either a theory or or the observation side of things? Where does it fit into that pathway?
2: Yeah, so generally what we can do is use both... we get stuff out of the lab, so we'll, we'll take, for example, aerosols that are generated in the lab, and we can measure optical properties for those. So there's a number of ways to do that, and once we understand how those aerosols interact with light, we can then use that information and put it into our theoretical models. The other area, even if we aren't collecting, say, direct optical properties of those species, is that we can see how the gas mixtures change during a, re- during a set of reactions, um, and use that information. So we know what we put in the can, we know what's in the can at the end, and then we can say, okay, well then how, why did it change, and what does that mean for that type of process in an exoplanetary atmosphere?
0: I was going to bring it back a little bit to the 3D aspects that you've been working on for, you know, well, 13 years now, right, going back to HD 80606. <laughs> yes. How is that? Is because my understanding of the early days is that most people working on it, on hot Jupiter atmospheres just took a 1D model. So what's the difference now that we have higher quality data that we can start constraining these 3D aspects? Do we actually see that with JWST data?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're starting to certainly see hints. I think it's also we're getting more and more data and at higher precision. You know, if we go back 12 years to the early days, there were quite a few people thinking about running general circulation models, trying to understand the 3D nature of um, exoplanet atmospheres and including hot Jupiters and even applying those models to the data which seemed to match actually fairly well surprisingly well which you know I'd run a GCM I'd produce a spectrum and then compare it to my five data points I'd be like wow I hit all the data points great
3: that's (laughs) my job essentially thank you
2: (laughs) I think as the data has improved it's really challenged a lot of those sort of early basic uh, general circulation models that that had equilibrium chemistry did not include aerosols etc and I I think that's a big part of where we're moving is that we're starting to see hints of all of these what I would call tracers of basically the global thermochemical structure the global temperature of the planet um, that we have to start taking into account and so if we can get you know, phase curves are great. That's how I started my career. And once Spitzer ran out of cryogen, we were doing phase curves like crazy, and it was wonderful. So this is like watching the planet go all the way around the star. Right. So, so it's like it's many, many hours. Yes. Or I think my the most was six and a quarter days we did. Wow. Uh, for a planet. You know, doing something like that with JWST is not... Impossible but not likely. Mm -hmm. But with JWST, what we can do is really look at the planet from many different angles and drill down on precision. So, looking at the planet both in transmission, so when it passes in front of the host star and the light gets filtered through, and then also looking at the day side emission, which has been really challenging since Spitzer went offline. And so, one of the big things that I'm excited about for JWST is really getting more information about the day sides of exoplanet atmospheres and what that chemistry and physics going on there tells us.
1: And we hear a lot about the transmission spectroscopy. That's entirely my bias on on this other stuff. So what is it
2: about the day side that excites you? So uh, on the day side, we, of course, assuming all of these planets are entirely locked, so they're getting blasted, right? Um, All of that incoming radiation is is being planted on the day side. And that's really going to drive the global circulation patterns primarily. Uh, And so the other nice thing is that we can often see deeper on the day side. So if we're looking at planet in emission versus transmission, we can generally see deeper into the planet and get a better idea of actually how t- temperature changes with pressure or altitude on the planet. And so if we can look at that day side, really understand what the you know planet's temperature structure looks like and we can do that in multiple dimensions with hopefully with JWST we have a really good understanding then of how the incoming light is being sort of recirculated and shaping the the planet as a whole so you know that information will carry over to the transmission spectroscopy along the limbs which will be influenced by this same process.
3: So it sounds like you know a lot of preparatory work, you know a lot of theoretical work, getting ready for those observations of exciting terrestrial planets. So obviously, when we had the tra- Trappist system emerge, your 2018 paper, ready to find some exciting atmospheres in the Trappist system, and that's exactly what we discovered, right? Um, lots of exciting atmospheric compositions there, right? no flat uh, flat, no, nothing so what was going nothing. on <laughs> sorry the sarcasm wasn't immediate, immediately coming through <laughs> there <laughs> um but yeah. it didn't seem like there was anything to say really about those first traffic trappist observations H- hst and and spitzer and i hear you saying yet but we could look to the most recent green paper as well to suggest that maybe even for trappist 1b there's not much going on so um what can we say about this exoplanetary you know, laboratory that was supposed to be this this great example of something we could use to test some, you know, Earth-like planets and, and try and understand their atmospheres a bit?
2: I think the word I'm going to use first is that you have to be patient and take it step by step. And that's what we were doing with HST. And in fact, I believe that paper was titled Planetary Atmospheric Reconnaissance. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was. Yeah. The proposal the or the paper. Um, and that's exactly what it was, is that... The whole point of the HST observations for the TRAPPIST-1 system, and we we got them all, we caught all the Pokemon, is that we were going to go down as deep as we possibly could with HST so that JWST would know where to start. Mm -hmm. And so the HST observations of the TRAPPIST-1 system were really meant to rule out any sort of corner case scenarios where we might have a substantial hydrogen or helium envelope around these planets, which is not exactly what we'd expect, but... We don't really know what to expect for terrestrial planets around an M dwarf, so you gotta rule them all out. Um, And so HST got us down to some pretty fabulous precision on that system and was able to rule rule that out. And even as we go into JWST, you know, the the Green et al results for TRAPPIST-1b, and that again was using emission, which I love emission, ruled out that you could have an atmosphere greater than one bar. So I think that's the important thing to put in context is that we are just taking it one step at a time. We've ruled out that they have sort of puffy hydrogen-rich envelopes. We've ruled out that TRAPPIST-1b has a, what we would call a substantial sort of thick atmosphere, um, which, you know. May not be what we would expect, anyways, anyway, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, given its proximity to its host star. And then also, like, you know, the types of atmospheres we see around terrestrial planets here in the solar system. And so, of course, lots of people are very excited about the TRAPPIST 1 system and what we're going to learn from cycle one. And I, I always have to say, it's a journey, right? We in cycle one are just getting to the point of, like, let's push it a little bit further and then decide which route we're supposed to take. Because if we just try to push too fast, we may miss something.
1: And I think that's important to think about with that TRAPPIST-1 system in 2016, when we first looked at it with Hubble, it actually, it was two planets with a maybe a third planet. It didn't, we didn't even know what the hell was happening beyond seas. So I think each step of the way has been this really, really big learning curve. And again, diving down into that question, what's the next bit? What's the next bit? What's the next bit? Does it have an atmosphere? Okay, it doesn't have that kind of atmosphere. What's the next one down? What's the next one down? What's the next one down? And there's seven planets to play with. So it's not going to be a simple uh, and short journey, certainly for those worlds.
0: So I was wondering, because another part of your research career has looked at the other side of the spectrum. So how does the UV fit into this characterization that we're able to do?
2: Yeah, and I actually got my uh, career started in ultraviolet, looking in ISM ultraviolet with sounding rockets. So I've always had a soft spot for ultraviolet observations. It's great, again, to kind of like come home to that, (laughs) for lack of a better term. The ultraviolet is fun because it is the place where the unexpected happens. (laughs) You know, with JWST and the infrared, we kind of know you're going to see molecules, you're going to see water, uh, you're going to see methane. The ultraviolet is like, Anything can happen, and it's really important for us to understand the full context of the planetary atmosphere. It's probably much higher up in the atmosphere, so higher altitudes, and it's really giving us some insight into, again, the formation of aerosols, clouds, and hazes in the atmosphere and other processes that may actually show up in the infrared as well. And so it's a critical piece of that. We do need to look at planets all the way from the ultra, uh, ultraviolet all the way to the mid-infrared in order to get a complete picture of their you know, physical and chemical processes. And you know, this has been done in the solar system for decades, right? You, you always look at it at uh, multiple wavelengths to get the full pictures. And so we're going to be able to do that uh, for exoplanets now with the combination of both Hubble and JWST.
1: Oh, no, another scientist asking for more data. <laughs> I mean, that's our job, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely typical there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely typical. So talking about data, is there any particular data in your career that you have been the most excited about or most proud of? Or is there something
2: coming up that you're, you're excited to share with everybody? Oh, I mean, that's a hard one. I mean, all the data are excited. It's like Christmas every time they arrive. Well, mm. it's kind of like a terrifying Christmas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, am I going to open it? Is there going to be a snake in there? Or <laughs> is it going to be a kitten? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> we want the kitten. I guess. I, 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 yeah, I mean, snakes are nice. Yeah, yeah some snakes. Okay. But, but usually people want kittens. So, okay. yeah, or the fluffy kitten. <laughs> I, I think. As we move forward with getting more and more data, it's going to, for me, every time data comes down, it's exciting Um, because it's new. And I'm excited to figure out what that data is going to be able to tell us about the planet. One of the things that Spitzer did allow was that um, it had some what we'll call fun and air quotes systematics, which trying to solve for that was one of those exciting puzzles and when you know several of us kind of figured it out all around the same time about how to to attack what we call these interpixel sensitivity variations catchy it's a catchy term (laughs) but once we figured out how to handle it that was really exciting actually that we could finally move forward and be like i can get rid of these systematics and i think that's one of the things that always excites me about data reduction is is how much can i get rid of the stuff that's Mm -hmm. not astrophysical signal so that we can have the best look at the planet possible and so my Spitzer days, I think, of course, the P 2 b phase curve observations, which was a six and a quarter day long observation, is one of my favorites still. It was like, I don't know, two million images. That's so many. So, <laughs> just a huge beast. But looking forward, I'm I'm excited about uh, upcoming observations of HD 80606b uh, with Miri. Um, Miri uh, on JWST has a lot of the same characteristics as Spitzer did, so it's very familiar and exciting in the same ways. And I'm going to look forward to seeing. Basically, it's a 23 hour phase curve, so it'll be a little bit like what we used to do with Spitzer, and I think that's exciting to me. That's
1: going to be a lot of data points. It is. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right, then. Have fun with that.
3: Well, how about from a lot of data points to maybe a lack of data points? And oftentimes on the show, we, well, I certainly, I lament a lot the lack of a super-Earth planet, for example, in the solar system, that our solar system seems to be not that representative when it comes to some of the worlds that we've discovered elsewhere. So we don't have a hot Jupiter, we don't have a carbon planet, we don't have a super-Earth. What type of planet would you like represented in the solar system that isn't represented uh, as it stands?
2: If I had to add a planet to the solar system... I mean, I would add a hot Jupiter, but that would probably be really bad for us. I don't think that would work out for us. No. Yeah, ignoring Um, (laughs) the dynamics,
3: I guess. (laughs)
2: If I could just, like, put it there without it, like... no consequences, hot Jupiter. Yeah, to study, just for
3: pure study, right?
2: I mean, yeah, I would... uh, No consequences, hot Jupiter. I like that term. (laughs) (laughs) I think that would be exciting. Otherwise, I think I would pick a mini Neptune. Mm. That would be my choice. You you could put it out in the outer part of the solar system. That's okay with me. It doesn't need to be hot.
3: Yeah, I think that would be <laughs> that would be my choice as well. And I guess we could we could you know hypothesize on why the solar system doesn't. We've got like a rare solar system type vibe here, or, or not? Is there something particular about where we formed a type of star that we have? Mm-hmm. That seems that we just don't represent many of these different planetary classes. We've got our small planets and we've got our big planets. Uh, little asteroid belt yeah. in the middle.
1: I mean, you've done a lot of work on the Roman Space Telescope, which used to be called WFIRST. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see potential for that to help us answer that question of, of, is our solar system more unique?
2: Yeah, I mean, so Roman is, again, part of this stair-stepping approach. Mm. And so this is really just to, to have the first active coronagraph in space. There are coronagraphs on uh, Hubble and JWST, but they're, they're passive. They just big hunks of metal, basically, put your thumb over it. Uh, not to grudge that's, that's awesome. I love coronography. I mean, yeah. Let <laughs> <made> me be clear. <laughs> but there are different kinds of
1: coronography. <laughs> one which is, let's stick a physical mask in place, right? Mm-hmm. And absolutely, this is in the way no matter what. What What is an
2: active one? So an, an active coronagraph basically has also some fixed parts of it where they're trying to block out as much of the star's light as possible so you can see the, the fainter planet next to it. But with the active chronographs, they also have deform, what are called deformable mirrors. And so these tiny little mirrors where you can adjust their shape, and that allows you to control what we call the wavefront better and and then null out the star more completely and get down to contrasts on the order of say 10 to the negative 7 or 10 to the negative 8 which is what the goal is to test with Roman chronographic instrument is to get down to that level and that's like two orders of magnitude better than what jwst is currently doing that's right right. yeah so you know with with spitzer we're able to get down to about 10 to the negative 4 contrast Um, jwst will certainly get down to 10 to the negative 5 or 10 to the negative 6 even with those coronagraphs and then for for roman that's the the idea is you're trying to get down to an earth around a sun which is 10 to the negative 10 right and so you can't just leap from 10 to the negative (laughs) 6 to 10 to the negative 10 and expect everything to go fine and so that's what uh roman is really uh, set up to do is to put us on that next step towards being able to image an earth around a sun-like star but roman should be able to give us an image potentially of a jupiter around a sun-like star so
1: something, is that cold or a hot hot kind of planet, a young planet still?
2: Uh, they're not young. So the, we're looking at this will be the first time we can see a mature uh, Jupiter <laughs> that's not hot <laughs> in uh, reflected light. That's pretty amazing. That's very uh, cool. So that... Yeah, so that's exciting stuff.
3: So, any updates on Roman? It's, I'm pleased that you mentioned it because we, you know, we did talk about W first a little bit on on the show, but we haven't had uh, that many updates from from Roman. So it'd be nice to know where we are. Like, it seems to be this political hot potato that. It's- canceled a whole bunch of times and then comes back. And a bit of a nightmare for the team, no doubt.
2: Yeah. You know, Roman was put forward as, yes, it should fly in the what we call the Astro 2020 uh, decadal survey from the U.S. And so it's been rubber stamped to continue, basically. Um, in the U.S., we, we sort of live and die by our, our decadal surveys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we <laughs> We'll them. about them a couple of times. <laughs> in this day. Day. <laughs> yeah. So now that they're like, yes, Roman needs to, to continue. And I, I think one of the challenges for Roman was honestly JWST. And until JWST got off the ground and was successful, um, there was always the question of whether Roman would just be another JWST. Mm-hmm. And now that everything is working fine, I think a lot of that sort of back and forth worry about Roman has subsided. So that will
1: be a 2030s launch for Roman? Late 2030s. Late, late 2020s? Yes. So, Brilliant. Um, Very nice. It's great. Yeah. Wow.
2: Okay. I didn't know that. You didn't know, no. No. So the goal was twenty twenty six, but I I think it's it's shifted a little bit. The nice thing about Roman is it was a hand-me-down telescope, mm-hmm. so there's less development that had to happen.
3: <laughs> a spare Hubble that was lying around, I heard. <laughs>
2: yeah, apparently there's just dozens of them in the back.
0: <laughs> we'll take them, we'll take them. Yeah, that was a, oh. a gift under curse mm. in some ways. It,
2: right? it is, especially for the coronagraph. The, the telescope, because it was meant to look down, mm. has to be retrofitted with quite a bit of baffling for a lot of the wide field surveys and the bath every time more baffling is added it really starts to mess with how how do you do the the uh, wavefront control and the development of the masks for the coronagraph so (laughs) amazing exocast
0: So Nicole, as, as with all of our other guests, we will get you to adopt your favorite exoplanet into our Hall of Fame. So which planet have you gone for?
2: Well, I had I was down to two. Okay. I'm down to two. I know you oh. told me i to adopt a planet. Yeah. And I'm having a hard time deciding. Okay. <laughs> maybe we can help. So maybe maybe you can help. All right. So GJ four thirty-six B. Oh, interesting. Which is the first. Neptune, that we were able to to find and then study in detail.
3: Popular one here. That will always
2: hold a a warm place in my heart. Okay. And the other, of course, is HD80606b, which goes from basically being a roasty, toasty, molten, well, you can basically melt lead in the atmosphere to actually being pretty close to the uh, inner edge of the habitable zone throughout its orbit, so... Hmm. Which one do you think is more deserving of status in the Hall of Fame? I'm like 80606. Mm. So I can tell
0: you that we already have 80606. <gasps> we do? So That's what I was checking. So I that makes the choice.
2: Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah.
0: That makes the choice for you. Yeah, okay. okay. yeah. Who picked that one? Who? That was way back in episode six and Hannah picked, and I picked it. Hannah picked it
2: way back then. Oh, see? you. you I already knew. You, you, you picked it way back. All right. So... Hannah and I agree that 80606 I is that. awesome, yeah. <laughs> <I already laughs> <But picked> it. <laughs> then I am putting forward GJ436b for the exoplanet Hall of Fame, our first sub-Neptune, or first Neptune-sized object mm-hmm. to be discovered, and the first planet where we looked at it and, it, and the chemistry was just not what it was supposed to be. <laughs> Never quite fit any of the models, nope. did it?
3: Nope. Which is what we want, Right which that's yeah exactly that's right that's
2: the exciting (laughs) bit you know the the early hot jupiter observations again mostly with spitzer and some hubble tended to just be like well my models more or less work gj 436 was like i am not going to work with any of your models (laughs) and what
1: particular about this planet kind of might be going towards that what is the different
2: compared to a hot jupiter for these neptune sized worlds Yeah, well, there's two things for GJ436b in particular, and one, it's smaller, um, and so we think it probably has more what we call metals, everything except hydrogen and helium, so there's stuff to work with in building lots of fun molecules and also aerosols. It's also much cooler than um, many of the hot Jupiters that we study, so this planet is around 800 Kelvin. It was actually um, one of the things in the lab experiments that Sarah Hurst ran in her phaser lab we, I wanted to make sure we could get to 800 Kelvin because <laughs> I wanted to see if we could start to test some of the chemistry that we might expect in GJ436b.
3: Oh, hence the safety concerns. I see. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I, we couldn't go really hotter than that for a number of reasons. Uh, but yeah, we, some we're hoping that as we study GJ436b, which is a popular target for JWST in cycle one, that we may be able to look back at some of those, those lab experiments and say, hey, I think that's what's going on here. That's kind of awesome. And
1: also, it's a, it's been a bit of a puzzle with the observations as well, hasn't it? It's been looked at with Hubble. It's been looked at with Spitzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and We haven't yet seen any of the J.R.C. coming, but uh, there's there's a lot of it as well, isn't there? It's across all the different wavelengths. How key is it that we get all the different wavelengths for these kinds of planets where we just don't know what's going on?
2: It's really critical that we get all the wavelengths that we can. Um, this system is challenging in part because of its host brightness. It's quite a bright host star, mm. but it is amenable to observations with JWST's near cam and Miri instruments. And then hopefully with Cycle 3, we have some new modes coming on that may allow further exploration across broader wavelengths for gj 436 b And again, it's also around um, a cool M-Dwarf host star, uh, which makes it a little bit challenging for the UV observations. But I think it's worth the time and effort to figure out how to get uh, observations of this planet across the full UV through mid-infrared, especially since we know that there's disequilibrium chemistry and probably aerosol formation happening in its atmosphere. So without all of those wavelengths, we're not going to have the full picture.
1: Excellent. I think a worthy planet for our archive of weird and wacky (laughs)
0: worlds. Agreed. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Nicole. It's been great to have you on the show hope you've enjoyed running down your highlights from your career <laughs> hopefully we'll have another new news episode out this month but that might take a little bit more time <laughs> we'll have to see let us know what you think about the show through twitter at exo underscore or on our website exocast.org where you can find all the previous shows you can help support the show and the exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash exocast each coffee is only four dollars and every donation over fifteen dollars can get you a shout out on the show uh, a big thank you to all our past owners on buy me a coffee you can also get some merch via exocast.threadless.com exocast is edited by fergus hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time goodbye Bye. bye bye
1: exocast you have been listening to exocast the Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPS Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in Astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK, Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in Astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.